Overthinking It Book Club for Saga. This is episode three of the Saga Book Club. We are covering chapters seven through nine, issues seven through nine of the Saga comic book by Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples. I am not Ben Adams, your usual host. Uh, he is away. He has teleported through space uh, to go rescue a ghost from an egg. Uh, but I'm Matt Rather, and I'm glad to be filling in as host. I am Ben's agent on this podcast, and we can't tell whether or not my interests align with his until uh, the final tally when uh, when the next world comes and we're all we're all dead. Uh, and with that cheery introduction, let's jump into the panel. Panel, your panel for the panel this week. Pick one uh, panel of drawings of Fiona Staples' awesome artwork that you think expresses something particularly compelling or particularly unique to this week, something that you want to bring up and discuss with the panel. The panel for the panel starts with Pete Fenzel. Pete, it's great to have you on uh, the Saga Book Club. It is a real honor to join the Saga Book Club. I haven't been able to jump up to this point, but it is exciting, and I'm glad to be able to talk about this. Are you, are you pro, pro horns or pro wings, Pete? What are you pro? What, whose side are you on? <laughs> uh, I'm on I'm on Team Robot, is what I'm on. I'm hoping that Prince Robot IV uh, manages to get through his, uh, his, his life, and his, I hope his reign is a peaceful one over all of the cruel roundheads who surround him and his glorified square squaredness. So there you go. Is that an acceptable answer or is that outside of Sure. I mean it's it's because you're a you're a fan of hip hop dancing, aren't you? That you, you, you <laughs> I'm like epaulets. I like epaulets. Anything that ornaments a shoulder is something I'm on board with. Um, so to answer the question of the panel for the panel. My panel for the panel is in chapter 9 during the dream sequence when you get to the place where the will is about to wake up and you have the slave girl on his shoulder and the the uh, the stalk across from him his fantasy of the stalk across from him and there's a moment where the stalk asks slave girl what her name is and she says that her name is god <laughs> right she says god now and, and you read it again you read it a second time you realize that it's not necessarily my name is god as much as a God, like, oh, I'm so tired. Uh, one of the reasons I love this panel is there's a ton of things that are circling around it in different directions that it is moving in, even though it is so static and simple with this almost Renaissance-style, like, girl's head laid down on its side. She says that her name is God, but really what she's doing is exasperatedly criticizing the Will's uh, fantasies. But then there's that whole progression where her face is down and then it turns up and it becomes the cat eyes, right? And you go through this horrible monster phase and then you see the eyes of the cat. And of course, this is lying cat. Okay, is, you know, there's a connection here between the name of God and the truth, right? There's an arrow that points towards the truth. There's also the panel above them. The stalk and the slave girl are making eye contact. Below them, they're in parallel. So they're looking at each other. Then, well, then below them on one side, the stalk is looking right ahead. And then beneath the God panel, she, the slave girl is looking right ahead, right? So there's a, there's a symmetry that's broken into this sort of trapezoidal asymmetry. There's just a lot of dynamics around this. I could talk about it for a long time, but I think that the whole idea of God and the truth and death of a loved one, you know, is that it, it reminds me a lot of Full Metal Alchemist. If you guys are ever familiar with that uh, manga and uh, an anime, there's a character named the Truth, who is the the kind of stick figure that you meet if you try to sacrifice human life using magic, and it, it just it's this idea of this this gruesome, dreadful, deadly idea of God 
which seems to be in the Will's fantasy, which, of course, oh, the Will and God and death and killing. And, oh, I get very excited about it. So there you go. That's my panel of the week. It's a very tiny, small little panel, but it's got a lot going when, on. When we get to the Full Metal Alchemist book club, we'll go more deeply <laughs> into, uh, into that one. Oh, there's a lot to talk about with that, but it'll it'll have to wait. Um, you know, say, you know, it's uh, we have to make an equivalent exchange. We'll have to give something up. I, uh, I mean, I like I like the will as a name set alongside God because it's sort of uh, you know sort of like Thy will be done. You know, uh, yes. or and- also the juxtaposition of like 19th century German philosophy. Right, with, with, which is rejecting God and replacing it with the will. And, of course, this guy's a very severe masculine fellow with a shaved head of the sort that the 19th century German philosophers might be somewhat kind to uh, or fond of. So, But, yeah, no, go ahead. I'm <laughs> Not enough mustache, though. No, he's really – the will – The will is this like a Samson story about the will gradually growing a mustache, which finally gives him the will that is promised in his name but not delivered through his actions? I really so. hope so. <laughs> Well, uh, while we wait for those facial hairs to grow in, let's move on to uh, uh, Richard Rosenbaum. Hey, very good to have you. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Richard, do you have a panel for the panel? (laughs) Uh, Yes, yes, I do. Um, It's also in Chapter 9, and it is the panel where Sophie, slave girl, ex-slave girl, and uh, Lion Cat are curled up together, sleeping very peacefully. Um, It's, first of all, just adorable. But second, I think it's a rare moment of calm in what's mostly a really intense comic. And we get, we do get shots of, you know, space where nothing much is happening to kind of punctuate the action and to give us perspective, like uh, we mentioned, you know, in in previous weeks, to give us some perspective about the ultimate kind of not not very significant uh, to in the grand scheme of things events that are happening, but at the same time very significant to the characters who are involved. But we don't get very many calm, you know, peaceful images of the characters themselves. And, um, just enjoying, just enjoying a moment of rest. Yeah, just enjoying a moment of rest. And I found myself spending a lot of time, kind of just looking at this panel and you know breathing deeply and just enjoying it. Um, not not finding myself compelled to immediately go to the next panel, to the next page, and see what happens next. Yeah, it should um, be. Well, we we also get a, a moment of rest. I mean, what yeah. could be more adorable? It's a little girl playing with a kitty, right? Like, yeah, it's, it, it, it was. It, it's great. It's like internet message board fodder, right? It's like uh, <laughs> it's like cute picture that your that your office mate sends you and like cc's everyone in the office, you know, on yeah. the uh, everyone on the exchange server. And it's, yeah. uh, I mean, a couple things visually about it. Lion Cat's head is upside down, so there's <laughs> this. I mean, there's this sense of kind of being mere images or being uh, a yin and a yang, it sort of looks like. Uh, and, and you know, um, Lion Cat is also kind of encircling and, and protecting her. And yeah. it's a respite for, for Sophie from all the, the unimaginable horrors that she's endured, uh, both in, in war and in being captured and enslaved. It's also a respite for Lion Cat, who, you know, uh, a few pages ago, uh, during the meeting between the Will and Gwendolyn, um, almost can't help 
cat self is is do we know if lion cat is a boy kitty or a girl kitty uh she's a girl kitty. yeah she okay she is uh cannot help uh uh herself from pointing out that uh when the will is trying to negotiate with gwendolyn um the will is deceiving her and yeah. uh, lion cat looks so sorrowful and you think of the burden the great burden of lion cat right having without rest to point out the lies and being able to uh being able to sleep being able to to curl up with Sophie and have a nice nap uh, must be a really great rest for Lion Cat. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Uh, Jordan Stokes, next in the alphabet. You got a panel for the panel? Yeah, I kind of want to point out uh, two panels, actually. I'll cheat, whatever. Um, they're both from, from issue seven. They're both of, uh, of Marco's mother doing awesome stuff. So one is on its uh, page, like, uh, I think page like 12 is the, the way that my uh, mine lists it, where she has used the, the crash helm to open a gap in space and is leaping into it uh, with this incredible linear sort of alignment of her body, uh, like an Olympic hurdler. She's jumping over her own speech bubble, right? Look at how much forward motion there is there. And then she's not looking where she's going at all, which I think is a beautifully sort of evocative way to tell you exactly who this person is. Um, with just uh, just a couple of lines, right? But then hold that version of her body in your mind, right? And flip forward a couple of pages to her uh, introducing Marco to to uh, to her thumb and, and four fingers, right? The the smack across the face, and look at the difference in the size of her arm from panel one to panel two. You know, my uh, my father actually teaches uh, drawing or taught drawing for a very long time, and uh, one of the things that I picked up from him, I'm not a very visual person myself, but uh, one thing that I, I kind of osmosed out is that when people are first learning to draw, uh, they'll often kind of get hung up on the idea that well, things take up a certain amount of three-dimensional space in the real world, so when you're drawing figures, they should be realistic, right? Like, they should have the same size body parts at all times. And then, once you get really good at it, you realize that that's not true, and that whatever you're trying to communicate with the image, the things, the people, they will sort of balloon and squeeze like Mr. Fantastic in order to be more expressive of the thing you're trying to do. The, the, uh, the examples that he always would bring up are these Renaissance drawings of Christ, where if you were to, to look at it carefully, Christ has a head that's the size of his entire torso. But that's important for Jesus to, to like to have that big of a head and that commanding of a head. If he had a normal size head, it wouldn't work as a Jesus. It's, it's what they say about movie stars, right? That they have you know enormous heads relative to their bodies. <laughs> yes, yes, just like Jesus. <laughs> and, and in this case, I think what's interesting is like, look how big her arm is when she's smacking Marco. Go back to the one where she's doing the hurdle and her arms are these like these spindly little sticks she's all leg and ramrod straight spine hmm yeah and a a a giant arm that's just just uh just uh uh uh, in front of her right sorry did i mix up marco's mother with jesus there for a second (laughs) i was looking i was i was staring at her on on uh on my screen on my ipad screen while you were talking uh you know um not not the most uh uh evocative pairing i guess marco's mother and jesus marco is more the jesus but we'll we'll get to that in in a second 
I guess I will pick up with mine. Uh, my, mine is from uh, issue eight, and it it is during the the scene when Alana uh, wakes up with a bundle of clothes next to her. She finds she puts them on uh, the armor and goes in and finds uh, Marco's father working at the the spinning wheel. Um, she had prayed that it was uh she had prayed that it was a, a coffee press. Uh the very last panel in that sequence of of several pages is uh her grabbing his hands and conveying to uh Marco's dad how much she loves his son. Um he says, uh, your son is just so, she says, your son is just so goddamn beautiful. Uh, Marco's dad is amused by this and says, yeah, I, I, I promise you the looks aren't forever. And she says, yes, uh, I know. And then, uh, and, and everyone is kind of smiling and laughing at this point. And then there's this, uh, there's this panel, this full bleed panel that, that um, has them with their rugged, strong jawlines uh, looking kind of like mirror images of one another. She grasps his hands and says, I wasn't talking about his looks. And there is such a, a look of kind of sincerity uh, between them. Um, and and it's it's hokey, but it's also it's very forceful. And I think the kind of the the force of it, the the kind of the urgency to convey this this thing that she feels to Marco's dad, to her husband's dad, um, uh, mitigates against the hokiness of it. Uh, mitigates the hokiness uh, of it somewhat. And she's you know. Um, communicating about love in a comic that is supposed to be among other things, a love story, uh, something about, you know, a, a very intense, a very sort of passionate and compelling relationship, uh, kind of Romeo and Juliet story, uh, between uh, two people. And, you know, it's hard sometimes to sort of express that bond. Uh, it's hard to do it visually and it's hard to do it with action. Um, because you can, you know, you can have them wax rhapsodic about their love for one another, but that's not nearly as powerful as seeing them do something. And here, uh, seeing her kind of make this profession and kind of grab her father-in-law's hands and, you know, this sort of uh, the humor and the kind of sarcasm that they both seem to have drops. Uh, for me, it's, it's just, it's very well conveyed. It's a very good dramatic moment and it's one that's conveyed visually very well. It's kind of a drawing that redeems a pretty pretty mediocre line of dialogue, right? <laughs> you mean uh, your son is so goddamn beautiful? That line? Oh no, no. The, uh, the I mean that's uh, that's one level of badness. But I find the uh, I wasn't talking about his looks. Uh, if that was if that was in a novel, I would throw the novel across the room. <laughs> sure, sure. In, in the graphic novel, with the look of sincerity, it totally lands. And actually, I think that that says something fairly profound about love: is that a lot of it has to do with saying things that are utterly dumb with enough sincerity that the person does not throw you across the room at speed. <laughs> <laughs> You're just saying that because many of us were at a wedding this past weekend. Aren't you? <laughs> I, just, I just love how uh, how bars face just drops when she says the line i'm going to choose to read that sorrow from there here on out not as kind of the heavy-heartedness of a man seeing his son all grown up and in love with someone but as the look of somebody who's like oh i wish so much better for this story than the thing that you just said <laughs> oh i'm so sorry. <laughs> i'm gonna choose i'm gonna choose it to be the like oh i thought you thought he was like hot 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were about to say he took after me. He looks, uh, yeah. he looks <laughs> He's like handsome me. as I am. Yeah. yeah. Are you saying my son is ugly? Um. So this is this is a scene of a kind of of new bonds of of family being forged, uh, and uh, this is in contrast to something that Hazel in her narration uh, evokes directly um, in uh, issue it's uh, issue seven where I think she brings it up and she she. Uh, says, you know, we all know what what destroys a family, don't we? Um, I should fill in the context a little bit. Uh, I should fill in the context uh, a little bit for that. It's um, it's when uh, Bar is tied up with the, uh, and we don't know his name is Bar yet, by the way. Uh, uh, he's he's tied up in the vines, and we all. Um, uh, uh, we we come back to uh, to Alana eating. A, what does it look like? It looks like a mango or something. Um, and the uh, uh, we've we've been just uh, on the planet with Fard, the egg with Fard. We've had one page of robot and one page of the will. Uh, both of them expressing sorrow and isolation. Both of them dealing with with memory to a certain extent. Um, and uh, I think Prince Robot's face uh, conveying memory, but more about that in a minute. And uh, Hazel says, still, for all the royal automatons and deranged mercenaries out there, only one thing can really destroy a family. Uh, and we all know what that is, right? And Alana is biting into her mango and saying, mm, pff, uh, <laughs> while Bar dangles uh, helplessly from the, from the vines. Um, so Jordan, in the uh, uh, in the discussion questions that were posted uh, before the weekend on this episode in the Overthinking It forums, and I hope you're all checking those out. Uh, there is a, a special section of the Overthinking It forums linked from the show notes of this episode, and uh, also available in the menu bar on on Overthinking It. Uh, a special section just for uh, discussion of saga, and one of the things we do is we post some discussion questions before the week's episode, and you're also welcome to start as many. Uh, topics of discussion there as you like. Uh, just mark spoilers is the only thing we ask. Um, Jordan asked in the discussion questions, uh, do we? Do we know what that thing is that can destroy a family? Like, contextually, uh, Jordan's question goes on, it seems like this. the answer could be secrets, heart disease, or a scantily dressed lady who isn't your wife tying you up and eating mangoes in front of you. Uh, what do you think can really destroy families, and how is that relevant to Saga so far? So, uh, I, I, Jordan, did you have something in mind when you wrote that question? I mean, is that, or, or were you really just throwing throwing that one open to the readers to see uh, what everybody thought. I'm pretty sure it's the mango one, but I'm curious to see if you all agree with me. <laughs> yeah, mangoes are, are really responsible for more broken homes than any other uh, fruit. Yeah, uh, well, I read that as um, like a biblical <laughs> reference, right? The fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So, uh, so, so, it would pro- so the way that I read it was that it, it's actually knowledge of your family members that can destroy family because you weren't always part of each other's lives. And there are things that go on that have gone on in the past and things that go on without you that if you were to find out about them, right, if you gained knowledge of who they were before they were, before they were your family, um, 
that would actually tear the family apart. That's interesting because it does line up nicely with uh, from from very early on the who is this Gwendolyn woman moment, exactly right? Uh, we're like, yes, they got through that, but that was definitely a potential family ender of an event that involved right. learning something. Yeah, and the uh, the sort of Edenic fruit has two dimensions there, right? There's the dimension of knowledge, but there's also the dimension Matt alluded to before of forbidden fruit and sexuality, in particular that it's the woman is eating it when the mm. man isn't around. So they, there's definitely a lot of Eve that's being suggested here, uh, with the you know bar is up in the vines, you know, which is sort of is somewhat like the serpent and the tree. Uh, so I, I can definitely see what you're saying, Richard, with a whole bit of different dimensions of that in that in that moment. Um, I had a separate idea, but if there's a lot more of Edenic stuff to talk about, if you guys want to, but I, I mean the whole idea. the whole rocket ship is is sort of an Eden, right? Yeah. Uh, but uh, but go ahead, Pete, change change the subject. Well, I mean, I didn't. There's the the Bible is is a great authoritative text, and there are a few that are more authoritative than the Bible. But one that I particularly like is called the Godfather. <laughs> and of course, in the Godfather, before somebody dies, mm. there there's a shot of an orange. Usually, like there's there's a whole bunch of different times in the movie, and, and of course, there's a theory. I'm not sure if it was ever confirmed as being purposeful, but there's a theory that right before somebody dies in the Godfather, there's going to be there's either a plate of oranges or someone is given an orange. Marlon Brando has an orange in his mouth, and so here we are about to learn that Barr is going to die, and we're being shown oranges. And in fact, if you even turn to the the next scene, I mean, they're mangoes. She's biting through the rind, so it's probably not strictly an orange, but it is orange. Um, if you t- go to the next page, you can o- see also that the the orange is being held on eye level with him, and it's it's put forward right before he says that he has less than a month to live. Um, and so it's interesting because there's a foreboding because she's the one who's eating the orange, and he's the one who's about to die. And she and this, then you have the daughter. Who is describes Hazel? Who is describing that this is the thing that ruins families? So is she speaking about the future? Uh, potentially, maybe. I mean, at this point, I don't know. I mean, I haven't. I don't know the end of the story. Like, I don't know what happens. But it's cool. It's cool to see that it could be death, but it also could be something like eating the forbidden fruit of you know adultery or you know or tying people up, right? Or as you said, yeah, the knowledge of all these things. If you could just go on in in ignorance of everything that's happening around you, the family could proceed as it always has. Yeah, I mean, is it? I mean, what? What it, outside the context, it would be like infidelity, right? Like outside the context of the of the story. Um, hey, what's the one thing that can destroy a family, right? So it's. I I wonder if it's, and and I don't really know the answer. I haven't. I've I've read it, but I haven't really put it together with uh, what's coming up. Um, I don't know if that's that's the answer, or if we're sort of meant to read to read something here. I mean, the idea the idea of knowledge and and knowledge knowledge of good and evil uh, being a kind of you know, being a kind of gateway to being a kind of gateway to death um, with uh, who kills someone, Gwendolyn uh, in issue nine um, kills someone for the first time. And this, this sort of knowledge, right? Like I've never killed anyone before. You still haven't. Right. Uh, This, this sort of idea of kind of knowledge and, and death being, being intertwined. Um, And then also like uh, this is a love story and also a war story. So, 
the the person's past right is both a romantic past with other attachments and other loves and and you know who the heck is Gwendolyn and and all that sort of thing and uh is also a violent past right like the the atrocities committed in war right things uh, you know all the people that you've killed all the the havoc that you've wreaked all the the carnage that's that's left in your wake um Especially, you know, especially with Marco, who sort of goes all super soldier, right? Who goes all fifth element all of a sudden from time to time uh, and uh, really seems to be good at um, fighting and fighting and killing people. So the idea there that sort of knowledge of one's past or knowledge of of uh, of who you love um, also contains within it the seed that can destroy the family is something that I think is thematically related to the to the structure uh, to the larger themes of the book. Another thing that's interesting, maybe uh, maybe resonant with that to a certain degree, is that well, let's say for a minute that the thing that destroys families is uh, you know is heart disease, spell resistant heart disease, uh, that it's death, that eventually somebody dies, and not from a violent military thing, right? But people just are going to die, and that that will destroy the family. If that's what it means, then every family is going to be destroyed because everybody is going to die. Right? So the only thing that makes you think that your family is not destroyed is your ignorance of the fact that on the grand scale, statistically speaking, your family has always already been destroyed. Yeah. Right? So uh, a family becomes this kind of bubble of fragile innocence that you can maybe preserve for a while before inevitably something catches up and one of you dies and then you're not a group anymore. Yeah, there's no there's no not being destroyed option, right? The good families are the ones that are destroyed by one cause and not by many others. Sure, sure. Or really, the good families are the ones that, during the moment when they are not destroyed, have something worthwhile about them. That uh, that having your family go on forever is not really an option. So that's not what you ought to sort of stack your chips behind. Yeah. That certainly matches up with the kind of na- pseudo nationalist narratives here and how they're being presented. Of you know the the because what is the extended family is kind of the country is one idea for it, and here the race right you have the the planet and the moon people all parts of their own families with their perspective body parts, and they, we're being sort of called upon by the story so far to look at these people looking outside of the people that they're related to. I mean, yeah, it's, this is a meeting of two families, right? It's, uh, and making a third family. And, and, you know, I guess it's interesting. Do countries survive or countries worth it or families worth it? Is it sort of a grapes of Raffi and Rose of Sharon breastfeeding the old man at the river kind of thing where it's like the functions of the family need to be extended to other people than just the people who are close to you. Uh, cause there's nothing inherently, preservable about that situation so this this theme is is actually woven through this whole issue i think uh it begins with a visit to a civil war battlefield right i i mean it's not a it's not a civil war but it it uh is a uh, a great battlefield of the war uh between landfall and wreath uh back when it was being fought actually on on landfall and wreath uh before it had been outsourced uh to all the proxy wars all over the galaxy and uh, we see young marco with his adorable dog rumfer uh you know yeah i like that the dogs also have horrors on their planet it's yep. pretty great uh, I know, I know. That's the best. It's so good. 
<laughs> I, I'm still with uh, Alligator Butler as being the best, but uh, but if you want, if if Dogs with Horns is your best, I I definitely respect that. Um, and uh, and so they do a little magic and summon up remembrance of things past, right? Where they uh, Marco's running around with the dog, his parents sort of kneel uh, on the ground. And uh, there's a knife, and there's a drop of blood, and suddenly uh, we're in. Suddenly we're in flashback town, and we see a terrible battle with all manner of carnage. Which you know, um, if you you know if you think of that, like heads exploding and people being uh, uh, shot into pieces, and and people being hacked to to death, hacked into people with their faces coming off. Right, like this is m- most uh, disturbing for a, a child as young as Mark. Is, is depicted here and the idea is is never forget um, we're talking also here about uh, uh, the Will watching videos of uh, him and the stalk uh, getting busy I mean a little creepy but uh, you know but okay um, the uh, uh, the idea uh, also is raised on the previous page with uh, Prince Robot uh, pursuing them in the Stalks ship, uh, pursuing Young Hazel. Um, that maybe all their pursuers would just give up, which is another way of saying just kind of forget about their about their mission. Um, and uh, you know, and uh, and then you know, I don't know something about uh, something about a sort of a secret you can't reveal is is like a memory that you have to that you have to carry with you and sort of keep within yourself, like the 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 knowledge that that you have spell resistant heart disease and are going to die. I mean, and it seems like uh, memory keeps families together, memory keeps nations together, <laughs> and I guess I mean the question that I want to ask uh, here. Is is there a difference between the uh, injunction to remember and the injunction to never forget? Right? Are those are those two different things, and are they kind of uh, do they serve two different functions? I may be stacking the deck. That's a leading question because I think the answer is yes. Uh, but does anyone else uh, um, want to jump in here about memory? I would say that to forget is to wrong someone else that you have some to to tell someone to never forget something or to tell yourself never to forget something is setting up the expectation that there's somebody else who would somehow be harmed by you make doing the forgetting right it it makes me think about uh, when they uh when when Marco's mother conjures the battlefield. She does it by cutting her hand and spilling her blood on the ground. And the idea I suppose is that the blood that is in the earth, right, uh, from these people who died there, which is, you know, an, an evocative way of talking about nationalism. The blood of the people is in this land, right? Uh, is that um, it's, it's our blood that's their blood and, and it's all connected. And, and thus, as our blood in our hand runs into the blood that's in the earth, so would we disappoint them if we were to forget. And then maybe with the will and the stalk, it's, he feels like he would wrong her if he were to forget. Whereas if it were to remember, then that's a positive thing, right? And it's, it's not necessarily that you're afraid of harming someone. It's not a negative command. You know, it's a positive command and there's some sort of benefit that could be accrued from it, one would think, right? Unless it's like breaching, right? It's, uh, it's like forgetting is worse than not remembering, huh. I would suppose. Um, 
just in discursively. I mean, I don't know, Jordan, Richard, what do you guys think? One thing that you might say is that remember has two senses as a verb, one of which means, like, never forget. Um, there's, I think it was Josh McNeil had a, uh, had a piece on overthinking it way back where he had a various never forget uh, graphics, and one was never forget to buy milk. Right, and that's remember to buy milk is like you're not supposed to forget. But you could, if you say, "Hey, remember that time when we were 12 and we stayed up all night like roasting marshmallows and throwing apples at cars," which of course is not a thing that children actually do. But you get the point, right? Remember can be a command to take something that you have forgotten out of the memory warehouse and remember it anew for the first time or something like that, right? Uh, so I get the feeling that um, the the thing with the battle that's never forget because uh, you know Marco's parents have been carrying this around they're going to have him carry it around the thing with uh, the Will going back to his dirty old movies is kind of a remember moment where this stuff is not fresh in his mind and he feels the need to, to bring it back uh, this thing that actually he had been trying to squash very hard. Uh, we don't get the sense, right, that he had been watching these every night. He wanted nothing to do with the stock anymore. Probably uh, if he had come across these tapes a couple of weeks ago, he would have burned them. But right now he's not going to do that. Right. He's, he he, remember. he's watching himself try to squash very hard the, the spider uh, and no longer trying to squash the memory of the spider. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, literally, remember means to sort of put the members back on, right? Like to put the arms and legs uh, back on. I, much as the the battle scene, you know, arises from the from the ground, and the the uh, arms and legs of the uh, of the people are are you know recreated there recreated there for Marco. Anyway. There's an interesting philosophy of the mind question here about to what degree is a memory part of yourself, part of your experience, when it is not actively being held in conscious cognition, right? Is there, is this, is, if, because the idea of never forget, there's, there's, a, there's something that's incorrect about that, which is that you're not going around always holding in your mind the idea of a thing. That's not how your brain works. Your brain recalls memories when it needs them, at least in terms of the conscious experience of remembering. So, there's this presumption about the fact that you're living your entire life with this memory being held in the forefront of your mind, as opposed to the idea that Jordan's talking about with the, the stock and the will, where the memory is something that is not in your current experience but gets conjured, right? That gets kind of brought forward. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. That's an interesting contrast. Uh, where does memory live? Um, and you know, what, how do you think about a person and their identification with, what they, with their memories as part of their personality? And one thing that you see of that in here is that uh, Alana has her own sort of horrible memories of war, right? That you, you wouldn't have thought this from the prior episodes, but when she's having the, the conversation with Barr, she's like, well, so all of my family members died here, right? Uh, that's something that she has with her at all times, and yet it seems like on her day-to-day basis does not affect her life at all. Right? It's only when she's sort of thrown into a certain kind of circumstance that she brings that memory out and begins to get a little partisan again. Yeah, I think it seems that um, to never forget, never to forget, is um, it's an instruction to let this event always be a factor, the knowledge of this event always be a factor in your behavior and your decision making whereas just remembering something you can 
remember it you can it's an it's an action that you that you can that you can take uh whereas never forgetting is something different right like yeah. it seem, it seems to have to affect your mentality never to never forget well right it's uh, it's what i i i mean just listening to listening to the dis- discussion it's, it strikes me that that you know the injunction to never forget and and i say to never forget uh, splitting the infinitive because i feel like never forget is one verb yeah. you know like but uh the injunction never to forget um always comes from outside right it's someone telling you never to forget and so it's it's always never forget what i'm telling you and what i'm telling you is always not just a recollection of events but but is always kind of a canonical interpretation uh of events as well right. it has a it has a lesson this event has a lesson that you always should take into account yeah yeah there's a there's an implied continuation of the sentence which is and also give a rat's ass right mm. <laughs> uh and uh and then remember you know remember um kind of springs from the springs from the self is like uh is is you know, um, more subjective uh, and more open to interpretation based on new circumstances and new uh, new ideas. Um, it, it's also, I mean, this this interesting that that what Alana says about well, all my my family died at such and such happens uh, in a there's this crescendo with Bar of of like the discourse of outrage, right? The discourse of of sort of competing. Uh, uh, like a kind of political competition over who is the most wronged or who is the most uh, uh, righteous, you know, and and then she sort of puts a stop to that, you know, that it's a different. Um, <laughs> she 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 begins by never forgetting, uh, and then later on decides to remember, and the thing that she remembers is like who she's talking <laughs> to and kind of what uh, what they are to one another. Um, being family. Yeah, she she remembers, oh wait, if this is going to really work going forward, I'm going to have to forget. Right. Yeah. And that's because uh, um, forgetting, a certain amount of forgiving is, in, uh, forgetting is involved in forgetting. Uh, forgiving. I can't get them right. <laughs> it's Never also, forgive. It's... I mean, forget. <laughs> <laughs> Never forgive. <laughs> it's also interesting, um, a very psychologically consistent thing, that the way that she tries to solve this, her way to cut the Gordian knot of, uh, you know, generations-long blood feud is to walk away. Avoidant behavior, right? Like, if I was a family therapist, I might tell her that's not really the way to go. But uh, if I was someone reading Saga, it actually does seem like, at this stage, at least in the narrative, that running as far and as fast as you can is the only rational choice. Yeah, it's... Well, it, it, right. Uh, the... It's funny. Family therapists kind of sometimes talk in language in a language of ideals, and here it seems like there's only a number of bad options, right? And your choice is the Kobayashi Maru. Yeah, your choice is to pick the the least bad, right? And like like uh, at the end of the Kobayashi Maru, uh, uh, you're magicked into sleeping. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> the, the only real way to like have a good relationship with your in-laws is to hack the simulator. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, having a good relationship with your with your uh, in-laws is not realistic. That is not uh, the least bit credible. But Richard, you had some some uh, uh, thoughts about what is and what isn't credible, and how a discourse of credibility of believability is dis- deployed by the characters uh, to kind of gain a, a certain comparative advantage or to kind of ch- 
challenge one another. Uh, why don't you share a little bit about what your thoughts were? Uh, sure. So when we're on, um, we're on the Will's ship, and uh, Sophie mentions that she can hear uh, Gwendolyn's necklace, and it's lonely. And Gwendolyn's uh, initial reaction is, you know, go back to sleep. But the will says, hold on, you know, what's, what do you mean? Like, what's, what are you, what's taught, what are you talking about? What's, you know, let's, let's investigate this. And um, it seems like the, the threshold of credibility is going to be something pretty uh pretty weird in in this universe where it seems like pretty much everything can happen and yet at what point do you do you start you know rolling your eyes and was like well no that's that's clearly absurd like that is just something that you should ignore and it reminded me of um earlier when uh when marco uh, expresses, you know, his incredulity at the um, the rocket ship forest. He's like, "Well, rocket ships don't grow in forests, um, but obviously, clearly, they do." He just hasn't heard about it. And uh, it, all of these characters seem to like none of them are very sheltered, right? They've all had pretty extensive experience with all kinds of different species and different planets and and a lot of different stuff and so it 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 seems like the choice or sort of the level of where credibility lies um is a really interesting question it has to be a very personal question for each of these characters yeah, well, who who do you believe? I mean, I think I think in both of those cases, the the uh, decision to sort of question someone's credibility is about uh, is about like asserting status, right? Like, is about a sta- uh, a status relationship, like Marco. Mm. Um, and and it's it's sort of about like actually demonstrating how how experienced and how uh, world weary how battle worn you are, which you're right does not rhyme at all with the the kind of world that these people live in. You 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 want to say to them, hey, haven't you uh, haven't you uh, like looked around? Haven't you looked to the to to your left and your right? Some pretty some pretty fantastical. Uh, pretty fantastical things are happening. I think it's also impossible to read this outside of the context of our, our current moment where, you know, the the audience for um, sort of sci-fi adventure stories uh, or sci-fi fantasy adventure stories is an audience that post-Tolkien is very concerned with world building and the consistency of world building and will really fault a story uh, for inconsistent world building um you know and i like i could not give a rat's ass and i i stuck up for that position uh once in a in a like uh in a kind of round table post that we had on on overthinking it and and i was uh roundly criticized by the uh by the commenters for you know not really not caring and preferring you know things like uh ineffable mystery and you know great beauty uh in in 
in works of art. Um, but and and Saga to me seems to be like you know no one's going to be there and say now come on you really could not have an alligator butler because the alligator's center of gravity is just so you know they their body is so elongated that they couldn't possibly stand up and you know that right this is not a level That's of discourse. Ridiculous. The reason you can't have an alligator butler is they're not social creatures. <laughs> so they wouldn't be able to comprehend this necessary levels of courtesy even if they had elevator intelligence that's not a present it's a time bomb and besides it's not my birthday uh it's i mean right like at, at a certain point it's all bad improv yeah well i mean i think it's not a matter of i don't know there's a i think there are two issues there right there's consistency but there's also uh, like the boundaries of reality which are not the same thing right like this is a kind of kitchen sink universe where you can have magic on the moon and then science down on the planet you know and you can have uh rocket ships growing in forests and you can have lying cats and i don't think that's the issue so but uh but consistency is a different is a different issue right you can't have rules that contradict each other or uh, unless there's a good explanation for it right like nobody says Oh, you know, the, 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 the technology users aren't like, no, magic, that's dumb. You know, that's impossible. They know very well that magic exists. Um, they just, for whatever reason, that's not their thing. Um, but uh, I don't think that we have seen uh, anything that contradicts the, the rules that we know of. That, that are that are operating in this universe there are certain rules and um, everything does uh, conform to those rules it's just that there's such a ridiculous number of elements that are consistent with those rules and with each other um, that it's it's hard to know where if anywhere there there's a line to be drawn right I think that something that it does kind of nicely is it rides the bubble between the characters uh, being skeptical as we would be skeptical and being sort of uh, trusting, I don't know, gullible is the wrong word, um, willing to go along with stuff as a sort of sane, rational person would have to be willing to go along with stuff in a world like this. And it goes back to that rocket ship forest thing, right? There is that moment where they're like, rocket ship forest, this map clearly came from the back of a cereal box. But then they're like, well, well, hang on, hang on, hang on. We've seen some nonsense out there. There could very well be. And then they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we should check it out, right? So you, you get to have the, the moment of wonder when you have something that doesn't seem to abide by sort of rigorous, um, uh, rigorous convention troll world building. Um, but at the same time, you don't have characters uh, acting like, uh, you know, like Scully in the X-Files, where she's like... <laughs> Aliens in season five. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, it, it, to a certain extent, it's like everything is everything is inconceivable until you experience it, right? Like the only reason that we know about gravity—it seems obvious, but it isn't actually obvious. It's just that this is Hume, I think. Um, it's act, it's just that we've always watched things falling so 
Yeah. It, or to quote, another, it, to quote another philosopher, magnets. How the f*** do they work? Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. Uh, it's, it's just that we, we're, we're accustomed to it, and so it, it seems obvious. Um, as soon as they walk into the rocket ship forest, they're like, oh, okay, I guess rocket ship trees are a thing that exist. Um, and Isabel is like, yeah, rocket ship forest, sure, of, of course. Because right, right. it's normal, right? She's from yeah. that planet. It's a nice um, teenage girl moment, too. Right? Just like, a yeah. duh, rocket ship <laughs> forest, God. <Yeah. laughs> exactly. Um, Isabel is a great character, can I just say? I, yeah. I, really, oh, yeah. I really appreciate Isabel oh, a lot. Yeah. I, I hope she's okay while she's uh, sitting there on the egg, that's the Fard's egg that's about to hatch. <laughs> <laughs> are you going to never forget Fard, the towering smegma beast, or are you going to always remember Fard, the towering smegma beast? Unfortunately, it may be both. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Yeah, uh, Fard's an interesting an interesting character, and once once we hear what he he has to say, he becomes an even more interesting character. <laughs> uh, Jordan, do you buy Marco just uh, just uh, binding with a spell the the smegma beast that that nearly killed his mom? Well, I do. He's very beautiful, right? As a lot of people um, It's this very interesting thing, right? Is uh, you've got this giant, horrifying triclops with billowing testicles, trying to kill you with a a femur that is still covered with the bloody scraps of its last victim. And Marco's the guy who's like, "We're going to restrain it and parlay." Is uh, is like somebody who is like role playing a paladin for the very first time, and everybody else has to go along with it because otherwise he loses his healing powers, right? Um, and <laughs> there, there's a beautiful uh, shot of uh, Clara is the mother, I think, right? Uh, giving him her hand to boost his spell with just this incredible disdain. And she's like, she's, she's giving him her hand, but she's not going to extend her wrist because, oh God, this phase you're going through where you don't kill things is obnoxious, right? Um, can, I, can, I just, can I just say that that may be the first time the phrase billowing test Testicles has ever been used? <laughs> the first, and we can only hope the last, but you never know. <laughs> the interesting thing about it, though, right, is that so he's doing something that is capital G good, right? And it seems to be important to him to do the good thing. It is to a certain degree pragmatic. He's like, well, he might know where she is. Let's see what, uh, what talking can, can do to improve our situation. But it also seems to be very much a kind of throwing in his mother's face that he is not a warlike guy. He's a, he's a lover, not a fighter. He's going to solve problems without the family sword, which he snapped over his knee. And it does solve his problem in the short run. But what's interesting, this is actually getting a little bit beyond what we're supposed to have read for, for today, but Fard does tell us this is an egg it's going to hatch. And having looked a little bit ahead, when the egg hatches, it does not seem like that ends up well for Fard. So, like, Fard is, Fard, Marco having mercy on Fard in this instance, buys Fard, like, a solid hour and a half, or something like that. And the question that I have is, is that still good? I think it's still believable. I think it's very much, it's exactly what Marco would do. But ought we to think of Marco as a really great guy for doing it in this situation where, as it turns out, it's not really going to help the person that he is trying to be nice to? have like a longer or better life in any way well i think that depends on what fart is doing there in the first place which we don't ever really find out right like 
how did all of these people and things get to this egg in the first place? There seem to be there are buildings and there's all these people and they they're all perfectly aware that they're on this egg and it's about to hatch. Like yeah, none of them they... are trying to get off the egg. I guess as right. far as we can tell, they're, they they seem to be like are they are they there? Did they evolve there? Like is that their natural home, or did they go there deliberately to kind of uh, uh, to kind of you know midwife this egg into you know into life or right? It kind of we don't get that information. Yeah, I, I assumed that they evolved there. That was the way that I that I definitely read it. The, the other possibility didn't occur to me, although now that you bring it up, there's certainly no reason uh, not to think of that. And actually, if you think about the way that evolutionary timescales work, perhaps every reason to suppose that that is what must have happened. Not necessarily. We don't know how long this egg has been, you know, gestating. Well, sure, sure. But then how would they know it was an egg and all kinds of things? It's, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of questions about this egg. Yeah, yeah, that only raises more questions. (laughs) We're getting back to the world-building issue. I don't even believe that this is an egg. I mean, there aren't eggs in space, right? (laughs) No, everybody eats pancakes in space. There's no (laughs) eggs and there's no bacon. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah. No, no, you, 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 Pete. So Jordan just looked a little bit forward. I wanted to look a little bit backward. We've talked a lot about credibility. We've talked a lot about never forgetting. There was one particular – one of the other panels, one of my runner-up panels for for a favorite panel is the panel where we first meet Gwendolyn. Where Gwendolyn shows up in all of her like Naomi (laughs) Campbell-ness as she she makes her entree. And I remember the time before where Marco reassures that – you know what? I don't think they actually use what is the what is the woman's name? Do they never use her name? Lana? No, what that's an archer. What is what is Hazel's mother's name? Elena. Elena. Okay, I totally yeah, forgot right. what Elena's name was for a second. Sorry yeah, about that. Because yeah. she's not referred to by name a lot in this chapter. Um, anyway, uh, he assures her that she is the most beautiful woman that he has ever slept with and the most attractive. <laughs> right? And I remember making a mental note being there like, we're going to meet Gwendolyn and we're going to see if that's <laughs> whether this is going to be like a Monty Python joke where it's going to be just like Eric Idle and drag is going to show up. <laughs> and it's like, oh, right, you are the most attractive. How could you ever be married to this? No, it's like a, a supermodel. It's like a yeah. horned supermodel with a giant you know, badass staff and ridiculous haute couture and a diplomatic pin, uh, you know, and it's like, oh, so did Marco, is Marco lying? Did Marco forget? Is Marco not credible? Is Marco sparing her feelings? Does Marco actually think that she's, that Alana is sexier than Gwendolyn? Because Gwendolyn is certainly introduced with like the sun beaming behind her, right? Clad all in white. And, And of course, in her glorious lunar Nubian splendor, Right, uh, this this sort of like, hey, it's Saga. We're going to continue to do all the things that the internet says that comic books should be doing uh, by making all of our characters like extremely and aggressively in your face diverse to remind you of all the shortcomings of all the other stories that you've ever read. Um, but uh, which, which is daring and brave and good, but uh, is I find to be a little bit self conscious while reading the piece. But yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think about the declarations of love to Alana from Marco in the context of all the other statements of belief? and statements of remembering and forgetting that we've been talking about. Hmm. 
I mean, it, we do have Alana also earlier talks about her mushy parts when Bar. So the the parallel to that is that Bar makes her an arm a, a space armor tank top that conforms <laughs> her mushy parts in a space Spanx like manner. Right. I was about to say I was supposed to Spanx armor. You know. Yeah, yeah. She gets Spanx armor. So maybe the way that Marco is talking to Alana is to flatter her mushy parts, uh, being her heart as well as her hips. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that uh, for me, for Saga to really work, you have to believe that the relationship between Marco and Alana is pretty sincere, and that when he says that, he actually means it. If you go back and look at the facial expressions that he has, too, like, if he is lying to her to, like, flatter her feelings or whatever, then he is a, like, he is a sociopath, because he is, <laughs> he is selling it with every ounce of his character. He's not just saying, like, oh, no, you're the prettiest. He's like, oh, my gosh, you're so pretty! His eyes like up like a kid who has like entered Disneyland for the first time, right? Um, and if that is an act, then you have to rewrite everything you know about his character. I, I think he just has tastes that maybe doesn't align, Pete, with yours quite so much. Oh, well, well I mean, I'm not, I'm, not necessi- I'm not necessarily saying that it's just that I find Gwendolyn more attractive than Alana. It's that Al- Gwendolyn is presented to us as beautiful, right? Like she is g- glorious in this frame. Am I just making that up? Or is that just. That oh, no, no. Just- no, no, I yeah. think you're right. Yeah, but uh, but that doesn't mean, therefore, like he, he, she didn't ask. So Gwendolyn's a hag, right? She just said, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you think I'm prettier, right? And right. Uh, Marco says, right. yes, absolutely. And he also says that she has bigger hips, which is they they will. That's the most consistent part of the world building so far. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say, like, you know, she does have rather slim hips if you look at yeah. this picture of her. Yeah, totally, totally, definitely. It's just it's interesting how the. I mean, I'm not saying it necessarily has to be sinister, or even that it has to be intentional or anything. But it's interesting how like this. T- telling of stories from the past, it is informed by context. You know, certainly in that moment, we had, a, you know, Alana had a different understanding of Gwendolyn than what we were surprised by when she shows up in her big cliffhanger splash panel. Yeah. So. Right. Look, forget, look, looking, forget. Uh, <laughs> looking, looking offensively diverse. <laughs> not offensively, just, <laughs> just obtrusively, not offensively, but obtrusively. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, I wish it could all be seahorses like on the, like on the previous <laughs> two pages, right? No. I mean, you know she, what? She was, oh, go ahead. Uh, I just want to say, like, on the obtrusively diverse thing, I remember, like, the first couple of shows to do that on TV. Like, maybe, I don't know, Scrubs might be the one that comes to mind. I was like, wow, they're really committed to, like, uh, to interracial friendships on this show. The writers yeah. really want you to think that, you, that they're on the side of the angels here. And then a lot of other shows did it, and now it's not something that I worry about anymore. Like, I don't really notice it in TV anymore. So I think that, like... Yeah, Isn't that really... Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, like, yes, maybe at this point you're like, oh, wow, they're really leaning on this. But I think that, like, that's right and good to do and actually does shift the needle on the discourse and will lead to, like, within a, you know, within a decade or so, if, if this book does well enough, could lead to it becoming the norm. Um, and that would be great, you know? Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, I think that really Star Trek, the original Star Trek, was the first one to, to do that. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, sure. Uh, I mean, that, right, because of the sort of utopian. Yeah. I mean, there's there, there's a kind of utopian social vision uh, behind it, and it's right <laughs> so, as Marco's goodness is is equated with a kind of pointlessness. The way that Jordan pointed out, there is a kind of good. There is a kind of like pointless, uh, you know, for its own sake, right? Uh, uh, quality to it that that. Um, that is good. Uh, that is good. I mean, I think 
I don't know. I think Gwendolyn Gwendolyn is like <laughs> yes, she's sort of she's sort of introduced there and not only her dark skin but also her enormous hair. Also she's backlit. Also she's presented all dressed all in white. So for like maximum color contrast. But I I mean, I don't know. I sort of connect that with the the sort of shock of this particular character showing up. Uh the and just the kind of connection to surprise. And I I also expect this as being like a turn a, a a turn of a page to a to a sort of left hand page, so it's a it's a kind of smash cut. It's the equivalent in in comics of of a smash cut. And I sort of like I, I uh, contrast it with Alana, who I would call unobtrusively diverse, right? Uh, you know, darker yeah. skinned, darker skinned than than uh, the rest of the characters, and um, you know, and and I mean from a different planet though though than. I mean, I guess we've met more horns than wings at this point, uh, and and the wings all seem seem pretty evil with you know secret agent Gale and the robot kingdom and and uh, and things like this, um, and and uh, the horns maybe more misunderstood, but uh, I don't know. I I I could be reading into it, but I th- right like I think I think this character is supposed to be kind of out of left field, and and uh, like every tool is being deployed. To uh, to make that effect happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely meant to make you be to say like, "Oh wow, I can't wait for the next issue." Right? Yeah, and uh, yeah, and and also also a little bit like, "Oh, someone's gonna get it." <laughs> yeah, <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> someone's in trouble. <laughs> Ex girlfriend is here. Yeah, uh, and she's got a big stick. which is this is another thing i brought up in the discussion questions which is like yeah you do feel that you're like oh wow marco's in trouble he already has the entire universe out for his blood (laughs) they want to murder him and his baby but now he's in trouble ex-girlfriend on the scene Uh, well, uh, this is probably enough to, to be going on for, for this week. So if you'd like to join the conversation about this episode, <laughs> episode of the book club, uh, we would be very glad if you could do that and talk about uh, issues seven through nine of Saga in the Overthinking It forums, where you will find the discussion questions. We would like to know uh, your answers to those, and we would love it if you also... Um, would add to the uh, add to the forums anything that you uh, you would like to talk about. The only thing we ask is that you mark spoilers clearly, so people who haven't read ahead uh, aren't surprised by learning something that they don't want to know, and now that they can never forget. Uh, if you haven't, I can't imagine that you haven't bought uh, the comic thus far. But if you have more issues to buy, uh, we would like you to support your local comic store because we're fans of those kinds of businesses existing in people's neighborhoods. If you don't have one. Uh, if the long shadow of Amazon, if the long backlit, uh, you know, obtrusively homogenous shadow of Amazon has been cast over your uh, diverse local comic store, I'm sorry, but uh, you could help us out by uh, buying the buying the comic online using one of the affiliate links that you'll find in the show notes for those episodes. Uh, those show notes you'll find on the homepage at Overthinking It, where you will find next week more Saga Book Club, and until. Until then, much, much more of us subjecting the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. deserve.